Welcome to the Range Project Podcast. This is Chris McGrory, and I'm currently a senior on the Harvard baseball team, where I study psychology and economics. And in these conversations, my goal is to learn from those around me at school and beyond. I try to uncover what my amazing guests do and how they do it. That means getting the tools, tactics, and routines they use, plus the mental frameworks they have so you and I can apply them in our own lives. And today we have an especially thoughtful and talented guest, Brian Shi. Brian is a member of the men's tennis team at Harvard where he studies economics and is also the chair of the Student Athlete Advisory Committee's Student Wellness Group with me. And Brian's path to Harvard was anything but conventional. He was a top tennis player in his age in the world and had a Nike sponsorship at 14, traveled across the world for tournaments, and even attended virtual high school, which together provided him with some super high highs, but also some really low lows. I was lucky enough to be able to chat with Brian about all of that. In this conversation, you'll hear why he had over a hundred tardies in the third grade, how a new coach helped him overcome the negative self-talk in his life and in turn improved his mental health, his tactics, often with a journal, that ensure he learns from every failure, improving him as a player and person, and a lot more. Now, we might not all have a craft in which we are elite at the international level like Brian. However, Brian's experiences really just catalyze the process of self-improvement in areas of life that we all share. Whether you're a top athlete or not, you're engaging in self-talk that affects your mental health at all times. You're going to have to wrestle with multiple identities in relationships, work, etc. And you're definitely going to have to face adversity and have to decide how you respond. These are the themes that Brian and I discuss, and as a result, I believe there is so much to be taken away from our conversation for everybody. So, with that, please enjoy myself and Brian Shee. One, two, three, do it! Brian, what's up, man? How you doing? How you doing, Chris? I'm good. I'm good. Love to hear it. And I see, it looks like you're in your bedroom. Can you I tell am. people where you're calling from? I'm calling from uh, Jericho, Long Island, New York, like three and a half hours away from Cambridge. Gotcha. And how close is that to the city? Um, it's about an hour or so east of the city. So Okay, uh, so you're like yeah. pretty, pretty... Yeah, it's like, it's like middle, slash like middle, like west Long Island. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Well... Thank you for hopping on with me. Just pretty quick turnaround, asked you and you said, yeah, dude, let's, let's jump on. So I loved your enthusiasm and I'm excited to get into your story because I know you as a college tennis player. Mm -hmm. I don't know you as a high school or youth tennis player. And I just would love to kind of get into the trajectory of your career and 
how, like what got you to where you are today. Yeah, that sounds good. So the only match I got to see before the season got canceled Mm -hmm. was versus Northwestern. And that was a crazy match, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Probably I'd say my best college match to date. I would agree, but it was also the only one I saw. (laughs) So, but I mean, that was what, like a few hours of back and forth, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like, it might've been like three and a half hours long, our, our own singles match. And on top of that, the doubles that we played before that, which which was like 45 minutes or an hour. So, yeah. So I saw the singles. So it it looks, or it sounds like I went to the, a great match, but (laughs) I mean, dude, I was mesmerized by it all. Like in that, in that got you into what, like the top 20. Yeah. So it actually, it actually pushed us up to 11 in the country, which I think was, you know, like our second highest ranking in like Harvard men's tennis history. Yeah. And I mean, what I remember most actually was your serve because (laughs) I mean, there are some tennis players, you see them, they're like from Eastern Europe, they're seven feet tall and you're like, okay, they're going to have a heavy serve. But I mean, dude, your, your serve was kind of scary. <laughs> is that, is oh, that, I appreciate that. Is that your, the strongest part of your game? I'd say it's definitely, definitely one of my strong points, which is funny. Cause like, uh, like you said, I'm one of the shorter guys in tennis. You see like these, these big European dudes or, you know, six, five, taller than six, five. Um, yeah. But I mean, that's just, that's just a bunch of work throughout the years. And I definitely say it's one of my strong points now. Okay. So we'll, we'll definitely get into that. And, I was thinking we could start with before I knew you mm-hmm. and dig into your youth and high school career, if that's cool. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So in my little bit of research slash stalking of Brian, <laughs> I saw you ended up as the sixth rank recruit out of high school. Is that right? Yep. Sixth and this in, my, my, like my class year. So and this is grade. your time to flex. This is just me getting, you don't have to be shy, <laughs> but in before that you were a top junior player, right? Mm-hmm. So I was, um, uh, I got up to, I think 65 in the world in the junior, uh, ITF tour, um, six in my tennis recruiting class, like you said, and was also able to, um, win a few professional points also. So I think I was like 1200 uh, professionally before college. And so is that ranking based on age or is it just juniors means under 18 or how does that work? So juniors basically means under 18. There's like a very large um, junior tennis tour that basically mirrors sort of like the professional tour that we see on TV. And so those tour, like the junior tournaments is, or I mean, basically like the, the junior Australian Open, junior US Open, French Open, so on. And the junior tournaments are actually at the same time as the pro tournament. So if you were to, you know, go watch, for example, like Fed at the US Open next summer, you would also be able to see some of the juniors play on the, uh, on the outer courts. So what, where did your travels take you? Everywhere. <laughs> Definitely everywhere. I mean, I was super fortunate to, first of all, have the financial stability to travel that much, but also to have done well enough in my tennis career to actually travel to these places. So I went to a bunch of places in South America, Caribbean, um, Latin America, Europe, 
Uh, I played a few tournaments in Asia and I went to uh, Australia also. Okay. What was your favorite? <laughs> That's crazy. My favorite? My favorite was probably Melbourne, honestly. Melbourne was my favorite. And I think a close second was Barbados. Okay, so in Melbourne, is that where they host the Australian Open? Yeah, is that that's what I, that's what I was there for. And that's hard court. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, have you played on? I'm sure you've played on other surfaces, but uh-huh. like, what what's your favorite? And I guess what is your strongest if you had to pick? Definitely hard court. Definitely okay. Hard court, which is lucky for me that college tennis is all on hard court. Yeah. And it's funny because I'm like I'm like awful on clay court. So if Kyle Sands was on clay, I'd have a have a much tougher time. Well, I mean, you could also say if it was on a clay court, you would have more experience and more practice on it. And I'm sure you <laughs> I mean, so don't beat yourself up. I'm here to <laughs> I'm here to gas you up. But yes, hardcore. Okay, so Melbourne, Barbados. You're talking to a guy who's been out of the country once. So the idea <laughs> of having traveled to multiple continents. Uh, before entering college is pretty cool. So a little envious, but (laughs) I would, I want to get into like, how did you go from the little kid at tennis camp, like everybody else to one of the top juniors in the country? Yeah. So, I mean, it's really funny because I'm actually the first and only athlete in my family. I mean, my parents never picked up the, the tennis racket, never played a sport. My brother also, who's a little older than me, never played any sports. But as a kid, I mean, I had like crazy energy at home. I was always like running around, like doing all these things. And so my parents always figured, you know, he should have an outlet for all this energy. So he started putting me in summer tennis camps when I was five years old. Yeah, I mean, I started playing with a private tennis coach who, you know, I talk to him now. He says that he, he always says that, he saw something in me as a five-year-old that um, he didn't see in other five-year-olds. I mean, of course, I don't know what you could see in a five-year-old that would make you think you would be a good tennis player eventually. But I don't know. From what I remember, as a as a younger kid, I was super shy. You know, you know, never really spoke out in, like in school uh, during tennis. And so, whenever my coach would you know tell me to do certain things, like oh, you should you know go for a run, or like we should we're playing tennis today for another an hour two hours I would you know I would never say no so I just kind of stuck with it um you know I was very fortunate to have that coach from the very beginning who was really knowledge in the sport and who really pushed me hard and then eventually you know it went from something that was for fun to eventually when I was like maybe 9 10 11 something that was really serious and eventually I was playing like every day and it's funny because when I was in elementary school I would actually play tennis before school at like six in the morning and also no way. yeah so i was showing up like i was always like five ten minutes late to class and like i think it was like third grade my teacher was like why are you always late to school like like what is going on and and i told her i mean i i have tennis in the morning before before uh you know before school and she absolutely loved it and yeah from there I just never got a tardy pat uh never got tardy it was funny. So on my report card, they had like these lines for tardiness and for like absences. <laughs> I think I had like a hundred something, a hundred plus like tardy, uh, tardy notes and like zero, like zero absences, like the entire year. That's and she amazing. was fine with it. Yeah. Like my parents, I like, talked to her and she was like, oh yeah, it's fine. It becomes like five, 10 minutes late. It's not a big deal. But 
Yeah, in the yeah. third grade. I mean, exactly in the third grade. What like probably missing nap time or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so okay, let's go. Let's get into that daily schedule. Were those six a.m. sessions something your coach encouraged you to do? Your parents encouraged you to do? And like, what was that structure like? How does a ten-year-old structure his day around? What yeah. sounds like kind of like a professional athlete schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, it was definitely my coach. You know, I think my first coach who I actually um, started with when I was five, like I said, and then um, worked with him until I was like 13 or 14 years old. So we had like a super long relationship. He was also, he was also kind of a nut, honestly. I mean, yeah, yeah he was also kind of crazy, which was, which was great for me because I really needed that in my life. I think, yeah, I mean, he, he, he said, this is the only way you'll, you'll, you'll get better if you want to be a professional tennis player, if you want to be a competitive tennis player. And I never really, you know, spoke up against it. Obviously waking up at six and like, you know, five 30 in the morning was not the best feeling, especially for a kid that's probably, probably stunted my growth. <laughs> honestly. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, I just, you know, it didn't know how to say no, honestly. And I also like eventually started enjoying the sport a little more. Honestly, when I was younger, I, you know, I didn't really enjoy it a ton. I mean, I'm not like one of those kids. I was like, oh, I love tennis. From the first time I played to a tennis racket, you know, when I was like two years old, I saw a tennis racket. You know? Yeah. So as a kid, I never, you know, loved the sport. I just kind of just went with the flow. Whatever people were telling me to do, I was like, okay, I'm too shy to, to say anything about it. So I was playing all this tennis, um, you know, and inevitably you put on, you put on that much work, you're going to start doing well in tournaments. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much how it started and playing that much tennis in the day. Honestly, as a kid, it didn't feel that it was that abnormal to me. You know, I was out there, you know, running sprints every afternoon and all this stuff. And I just, it was okay. I really looked up to my coach and he pushed me hard and he, he put all this effort into me. So I was like, okay, this is, this is, this is what I need to do. So 6am morning sessions, afternoon workouts, more skills, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, after school, what time are you getting home? I guess there's not really that much homework in elementary school, but. <laughs> well, it was a while ago, so I don't, I don't think I remember that well, but I think I got out of school maybe at like, like two-ish, three-ish, go for like an hour or an hour and a half of tennis after school, get back, get back by like six, 6.30 for dinner and, you know, just do it all over again. That's, that's <laughs> crazy to me who just i mean i did like private lessons maybe Mm -hmm. on the weekend with baseball coaches you know Mm -hmm. or even once i started getting in like past little league it was oh it was a big deal like oh you take it serious you go and you go and work out Mm -hmm. and whatever that's push-ups and sled pushes and i mean it was running and it was great but not at the caliber of (laughs) a 9 10 11 year old so you mentioned this idea that you couldn't say no and you were pretty shy. Did you feel a lot of pressure to keep up with the training, the schedule or, or was it, did you have like internal drive to do it? Mm -hmm. I think there was definitely more external motivation coming into me than, than internal. Uh, to do you know all of this and honestly I think all that tennis at a young age looking back on it wasn't great for me because I did when I was like 14 15 
I ended up, you know, really disliking the sport. I was kind of like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of sick of it at this point. I want kind of want to do other things. So I think it was definitely good in that it really instilled like the sense of like discipline and like a great work ethic from a really young age, which was, you know, so helpful. And, and it continues to be really helpful in my life and in everything outside of tennis even. But um, yeah, again, it was more, I think, external. And then when I was on the courts and my coach really pushed me hard verbally, sometimes I think maybe a little, a little bit too much looking back on it now. And so, yeah, like I said, I was just kind of one of those things that, you know, I just felt like I had to do it. It was just part of my life. So just kind of went with it. And I mean, we might dig into your coach a little bit more if you're mm-hmm. cool with that. Of course. Yeah. But did you also feel pressure? Did you have pe- pressure from your parents mm-hmm. to also keep pushing, keep being the best, keep up yeah. with the schedule? Definitely. I mean, like I said, like having been like the first athlete in my family, uh, my parents, you know, never played sports in their life. I don't think they really understood kind of like the competitive aspect of it in that like, you know, sports in general, but especially tennis, uh, I feel in individual sports, you can put all this work into this, into this point, put all these hours, um, you know, the early mornings, the late nights, but then you can go into a match and just have a really off day and lose. And I, so I think, um, my parents didn't really understand that. I mean, there were definitely moments in my life where they were wondering, why are you, you know, losing first round, second round in these tournaments if we're paying this much money for you to be a good tennis player? And I think in their mind, especially because of my, my brother growing up, he was more of an academic, more focused on, on, on school. I feel like in academics, you know, the more you study, it directly translates to a higher grade. Right. Whereas in sports, you know, like I said, you can have an off day. I mean, there's also another guy competing against you. Yeah, that's just another guy case. pushing back. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's something I did struggle with um, as I in middle school and, and the beginning of high school. And I guess what what changed? What was the transition from feeling? I mean, that's a lot of pressure on mm-hmm. a young kid, and your parents might have been asking it out of the goodness of their heart, you oh, yeah. know, definitely. And, but I mean, that is a lot of pressure. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, we think you should be, or could be doing better. So I'd like to ask, what was the transition from feeling that crazy pressure to where you felt like you were doing it for yourself or maybe yeah. that, that hasn't occurred, but it, mm-hmm. it, it feels like it has just having been yeah. your friend. You no, know? It has. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of started when I was like 13, 14 years old. Growing up, I was always a good tennis player. You know, I was ranked nationally, but I was never really, really good. Like to a point where, you know, people were thinking, oh, this kid can be, you know, a pro tennis player. But when I was 14 years old, we played, there's this annual tournament down in Florida, two of them actually, which are known as, you know, two of the biggest international junior tennis tournaments. And when I was 14, I ended up doing actually really, really well in those two tournaments, which was like kind of a surprise to myself and also the coaches and, and the people around me. I actually made finals in this tournament called Eddie Herr, which they have in Bradenton, Florida, and then quartered um, at uh, Orange Bowl, which is the, the second really large uh, is that at, tournament. Is that at, at IMG? Uh, yeah, first one is IMG. Second one, they have it somewhere in like Miami or Boca, something like that. Gotcha. 
Yeah. So end up doing really well in those tournaments. I actually picked up a Nike sponsorship after those two tournaments. Yep. And so, I, you know, as a 14 year old picking up a Nike sponsorship, you know, effectively kind of placing myself within like the top 10 junior tennis players in the world. I felt like, you know, on top of the world, I was like, oh man, you know, I've made it. When in reality, I'm 14 years old, like definitely. Right. I mean, Is that a freshman in high school? Uh, yes. It might've been like right before high school. That's yeah, crazy. It was definitely right before high school because that the next, very next year I decided to, or my parents put me in an online schooling program because I started traveling a bunch. But yeah, I mean, I fell on top of the moon. I thought, you know, this is it. Now the rest of my life is going to be pursuing a professional tennis player over the path of a professional tennis player. But what was like really crazy about it was like literally a month after I had made quarterfinals of the, of the Orange Bowl, I actually, you know, was hospitalized for a week with, um, with rhabdomyolysis, which is basically like a disease where your, your muscle is breaking down at a rate where, you know, your body can't like filter all that like tissue, I guess, out of your body, uh, which is sort of like really affects the livers. And so I was like, you know, 14 years old in the hospital after having done so well in these tournaments. And, you know, you know, I was fine afterwards. I started practicing like a week, you know, after I, I got discharged, you know, that really sort of, it was sort of like a, a huge blow to my confidence the rest of the year because like, not only did it affect me that week, but it also affected my physical state the rest of that year, pretty much. Because I was getting like super tired and lethargic and matches and in practices. Um, and I just started losing so much more than I was used to. I think that entire year, I probably, I mean, I would have to like go back, but I, I was probably like either even or like negative, you know, in, in my record that year. And that was really the first year I started traveling a lot too for tournaments. So I, you know, I felt awful. Yeah, like my parents were putting all this money into, you know, my tennis and traveling, but I wasn't able to, you know, show, you know, show the results for it. Going back to, I guess, like the question that you asked, when I started sort of realizing that I should start playing for myself was when I sort of made that coaching switch to who was, you know, a former uh, college tennis player himself at Oklahoma, was All-American, played professional tennis afterwards, got up to like 500, 400 in the world. You know, he was just, he was just such a, you know, kind soul. I mean, he was a younger guy, a few years out of college, and he really understood kind of the spot where I was in. I felt all this external pressure from my parents, you know, my old coach, and can really, you know, take a toll on your confidence if you're not doing that well. And everyone knows also that, like, I'm definitely my own biggest critic. And I'm always constantly criticizing myself on court, off court, and then add onto that sort of like all of this, criticism that I'm getting from my parents and my coaches. Like I said, it really builds up and, you know, starting with, with that, uh, with that next coach, he really sort of made tennis more enjoyable for me on court, off court, more and more of, instead of more of, instead of tennis being more of kind of like a job and something that I just need to do in my life, something that he, he sort of taught me that it's just something that I should derive joy out of. And I mean, if I don't enjoy it, then, you know, why am I really out here? Yeah. That's that one of the big things. I mean, that lesson, I think, comes to athletes, every athlete at different times. And the ones where that clicks, those are, I've found to be the successful ones. And I've also struggled with that as well. I mean, all through high school, growing up, I mean, Little League was the best. High school was the best. It was just 
nothing but a joy. And then basically after my, I guess my senior year, after the basketball season, I was like, okay, I'm now pretty much a full-time baseball player. I'm going to go on and, and play in college and aspire to play professionally. And something in my brain just, it turned into a job. And that really drove me to work really hard. But at the same time that like self-criticism and perfectionism, Mm -hmm. if you carry that onto the court or the field, like you're done. I completely agree. And I think the perfectionism definitely is what kills because I mean, we're all human at the end of the day. We're not going to be, you know, robots. Um, We're we're always going to make mistakes. And I think once you understand that, okay, like these mistakes are normal and they're fine, that that's when you'll, you know, start to really improve, at least for me, when I started realizing that. Absolutely. And did that, so it seems like that injury was kind of like a turning point. Am I wrong? Mm -hmm. So it definitely was. So did that kind of change your vision in like your trajectory of your career? Did you have any doubts like, Oh, maybe aspiring to be professional isn't worth the time, Mm -hmm. energy, money, whatever. Sure. I mean, I was super fortunate to have parents who definitely prioritize, you know, education over athletics. Whereas, you know, in my head, he has obviously as like a, as like a 14 year old, 15 year old who was doing well on international stage was really only focused on, on tennis. My parents like, you know, always pushed education on me as well. So I did obviously, you know, have something to fall back on if tennis was, were not to work out. But like I said, I mean, that year was, was so tough on my tennis, so tough on my confidence, my mental health, and also losing my Nike sponsorship like the very next year. Yeah. And so that's when, you know, things just felt just awful for me. Cause I, at that point I was like, maybe like 16, 15 years old having felt like I was on top of the world. So now all of a sudden, you know, felt like, can I even like actually even like do anything with the sport? You know, I was even struggling to think of colleges that would possibly want to take someone like me. Cause my ranking had dropped a ton as well. You know, I was no longer like top 10 in my, in my recruiting class. I wasn't even top 20. I don't think. So that also started to become a concern too. But like I said, it was when I started working with that second coach who really started making tennis, you know, fun for me and enjoyable and really relieved sort of all of that uh, or most of the external pressure that I was feeling. That's when I started, you know, really going into tournaments, not really caring what people thought of me, not caring, you know, what people, you know, thought of my game, just really kind of trying to go out there and just enjoy it for what it is. And that's when I really started to develop sort of that appreciation for like the competition of athletics, you know, maybe at times in my life, I wasn't that into the sport of tennis, but I really enjoyed sort of, you know, the process of like perfecting the craft and then like using everything that I've learned to go up against someone else and testing my abilities and really just sort of, you know, just competing and just fighting your heart out and actually seeing something, you know, uh, as a result of, of all that hard work. Dude, I have a ton of thoughts. And first I want to say thank you for sharing 
the struggles because yeah, of I think every athlete has at least something and I can speak from experience. I think we've talked about this, but my, my challenges as an athlete were more wrapped up less in pressure and more in like identity in mm-hmm. that I was injured my senior year of high school, came into college, mm-hmm. injured, not being able to play. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I am a baseball player. My value is my right arm and throwing a baseball. Mm-hmm. And when that's taken away from you, dude, like it's crushing. So freshman year for me was was super tough. And then I also what you said about loving the process really resonates with me. And I mean, there were, there were points in my college baseball career, fingers crossed that it's not over. Hopefully we'll find out soon. (laughs) Hopefully. But there were phone calls or conversations with my dad where I would just be like, dad, I love the six days in between starts. Mm-hmm. And then on that seventh day, I'm just kind of, I'm not excited. I think I put too much pressure on myself to be perfect. And I never really appreciated the competition. Like you said, and I want to ask, like, how did you transition from not only loving the process? Because I think that's kind of like a prerequisite mm-hmm. for getting to, let's just say, division one athlete or maybe not even but to an elite level Mm -hmm. so on top of loving the process how did you come to learn to appreciate competition and love that aspect of tennis Mm -hmm. um i think that it's something that that really sort of started towards the end of high school and i think that really developed a ton throughout sort of um, my college career so far I think, you know, tennis being such an individual sport, you don't really have that many people to sort of fall back on, at least when you're out there on court, you you might have like bad days and, you know, you won't have like a teammate to be like, you know, can you, you know, to pick up a slack for you basically. And on top of that, you know, if you're having that bad day and you're just being super negative, like there's no one out there is going to be like, all right, it's time to like pick it up. You have to get on top of it. I think, that idea was like something that really sparked sort of that love for competition. I think there was one point at one point in high school that really started allowing me to play at a higher level. It was when I, you know, was coming back from sort of that slump of a year or so when I was doing really poorly. And you know, just, I was just, you know, just feeling bad myself for myself, always super negative on court even in practices, you know, I was just always so negative. Like, Oh, I'm just, I'm a bad tennis player. Like, why can't I do this? Like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go like next weekend and lose first round, like all of these different things. And I don't, I don't know what it was, but I was just sitting in my, my bedroom after like a super, you know, tough practice again, like feeling bad for myself. Like, Oh man, like why does all these things happen? Like, why, you know, can't I like, like run five minutes without like going out of breath and all these different things. I just think, I just, I just told myself, like, I just, I, you know, I had, an, I had enough of it. You know, I just had enough of, first of all, losing, but I had enough of, you know, just feeling bad for myself. You know, I just didn't want to, like, come back to, you know, 
my room in my house every day feeling like I just had a bad practice or like a bad tournament. Like I'm, I'm just sick of it. And so I just told myself like, you have two options. You can either continue along this path where you're not doing that well in tennis and just feel bad about yourself off court too. And it's going to affect your, you know, your, your life outside of tennis, or you can, you know, really just embrace the adversity and just, you know, push through the slump. And I just feel like, I just felt like something that I did. I talked to my coach also the next day. I was just like, you know, man, I just, I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm just, it's time to really get out of the slump and really, you know, do something, start to get back to the, to the level that I was playing at when I was a little younger. And that's when I really started loving sort of like that process. I mean, starting from a point where I was not sure if I would even be recruited to some of the top D1 colleges. I just, you know, I, I don't know. It was, it's kind of hard to explain now in words, but I just really kind of just put my head down and just went to work. I mean, just putting in the hours, like not just the hours, but also just like making the best use of my time. Cause I was just, I just didn't want to look back on my high school career, my junior tennis career and be like, Oh, I could have done better. You know, I should have done these different things. And I was always hearing stories of, you know, older players who were really good when they were younger and then sort of slowed down in terms of their effort and their motivation and really didn't amount to much in the sport, um, which is, I mean, which is, which is fine, but I, I, you know, I really wanted to do something in tennis and with the talent that, you know, that I had from, from a young age. So yeah, like I said, I just put my head down, went to work, lost a few matches after that. I was like, okay, I'm, you know, it happens. No one's perfect. Again, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier and then eventually, you know, started winning again. And I was like, oh man, like, you know, all this hard work that I've been putting in this past year or so starting to, you know, amount to something. And then, you know, the rest is history started doing well towards the end of high school, got recruited to, you know, Ivy League colleges, some other top colleges as well, chose Harvard, of course. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's been, it's been a great ride. Oh, I love that story because well, it sounds like a lot of individual reflection, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it sounds like this second coach of yours was really, really important in helping you get over that hurdle. Did he give you any skills, mental practices, tactics to use? It sounds like you had a lot of negative self-talk and feeling bad for yourself. Were there things that he recommended you do to kind of flip that, that script? Well, first of all, whenever I would start talking negatively about myself during practices, he would get so mad at me. I mean, whenever I would be like, Oh man, like my backhand sucks or, you know, I'm just a bad tennis player, all these different things. He'd get so mad at me. I mean, he'd be like, well, you're obviously not a bad tennis player. You know, you've done, you know, achieved all these great things, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think that the greatest piece of advice he's given me definitely is that, you know, life is, is full of hills and valleys. You'll have good times and bad times, but you should never get too high when things are really going your, your way, but not get too low when, when things aren't going your way. So really to sort of like keep that equilibrium and in that way, you know, it was something that really helped my, my mental health, I think, definitely. Because when I started, you know, losing matches, I just thought to myself, well, that's, that's fine. I'll on to the next one of all these other tournaments. And then when I started playing really well, I was like, okay, 
let's not get like carried away. We have some, we have some more work to do. I think that's something that allowed me to continue improving throughout the years. And it definitely, it absolutely doesn't sound like you were complacent in feeling too high or too low. You still had these aspirations to go to the best division one school you could mm-hmm. play as long as you could professionally. Did you, did you set goals for yourself or did you visualize yourself playing at this tournament versus this player in this country? Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm just, tell me if I'm off base. Um, so honestly, I don't think throughout my tennis career and throughout my life that I've really sort of told myself, okay, I want to achieve this and this year achieve, you know, something in the next few years. I don't know. I mean, I, I know other athletes do it. Other people do it, but at least for me, I just feel like if I set this goal for myself, I feel like I'm either going to limit myself to a certain goal and not, you know, try to achieve something even greater than what I set myself out to do, or I'm setting my goal too high to, to a point where if I don't achieve it, I'll feel like I didn't succeed in a certain way. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, it does. I don't know. I I just never really liked the idea of setting a, a goal for myself. I just, you know, always kept telling myself, I just need to keep working, keep improving every day. I was, making little steps to better myself as a tennis player, better myself as a person. And then eventually I can look back on everything that I've achieved throughout my life and really be proud of myself, which I can do now. Honestly, I, um, of course, you know, I'm hoping that there's, that there's more to come. Hopefully this spring, <laughs> hopefully in the spring. But um, yeah, I was never that big on sort of setting my goals. That's a really interesting perspective, and thank you because I mean, I was the opposite, and maybe it was to my detriment. I don't know. I mean, I can look up. I'm in my high school bedroom. I have like goals like on my wall, and then mm-hmm. bullet. It was after I got injured, so I mean, I had this this goal, and then there's all these bullet points underneath. And like the first one is like get through physical therapy or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. get the back brace off, you yeah. know? And I, I mean, I outlined it all the way through, but you had a different perspective that sounds more like continual improvement, kind of like the Kaizen in the business model. Have you ever heard mm-hmm. of that? I don't think I have. No. What is so that? that's kind of just like the idea of 1% improvement mm-hmm. and if you do that over time, it'll compound and you'll either get to where you want to be or maybe even uh, surpass your expectations. But Mm -hmm. you mentioned something interesting. Obviously there are tangible ways to improve as a tennis player, whether that's skills, stamina, et cetera. Obviously I'm kind of speaking out of my (laughs) domain, but you also mentioned you wanted to better yourself as a person. Mm-hmm. How do you, did I hear you right? And then how do yeah. you, like, do you measure, not measure that, obviously, like 
This mm-hmm. isn't a science experiment, but how do you track that? And I guess why in the conversation of tennis, why does that also come up as mm-hmm. something that you're striving towards? I think this is something that I sort of started really focusing on in college, just realizing sort of that the person I am today really is a result of, you know, all the work I've put into tennis, just sort of that work ethic, the humility, you know, the discipline, all these different things that have been so helpful for me outside of the court, outside of tennis, that I sort of really started like thinking about ways in which tennis could continue to make me a better person, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. For example, like in college, you know, tennis is essentially a team sport, whereas before college, I mean, it's an individual sport. So like I said earlier, you're out there on your own, you're suffering on your own, you're celebrating on your own. But now all of a sudden you're thrown into this college team environment where all of a sudden it's not all about you anymore. You know, everything that you do in practice, in matches has, you know, has an effect on your teammates and, you know, the the success of the entire team. And so I think going into college, I was never the most vocal person on court. You know, I pumped myself up at the same, like in matches, but at the same time, you know, I was never really that guy to go crazy when I like win a big point or like win a big match or a tournament. But then when I started playing college tennis, I'm playing these dual matches and all of a sudden I have like 50 plus people in the crowd, like yelling their brains out, like at me. It's like, kind of like, it's kind of scary. I'm just like, Oh man, like they really want me to win. Right. Um, And so I kind of had to come out of my shell a little bit in terms of sort of like being a person who can bring the energy in matches and in practices and really be a vocal leader on a team. Even if, you know, in the beginning, I really, you know, I kind of had to fake it because I, I mean, I wasn't, like I said, I, I didn't come, didn't come natural to me. So in my freshman year, I obviously had other like, older guys pushed me to be a little more vocal. And I was just like, okay, this is what I need to do. Start going to practices. <laughs> I started screaming my head off. Like some of the other guys, like trying to pump our, sure. to pump our boys up. And then, you know, it just got to a point where it just started becoming natural for me. So, yeah, I think that's just one way of sort of like, in terms of like making myself a better person, just like all these little like life lessons that you get from the sport, like faking, you know, being an energetic person, for example, and then actually making that into something and making that like building that into your character, basically. I think those are just ideas that you can really take outside of athletics. For example, like, you know, I'm definitely not the most like confident person outside of the court, but sometimes, you know, you have to fake it for the benefit, you know, of, of, you know, the members of your team. And so that's something that I feel like I've really taken out of, uh, out of athletics and especially college athletics. On the confidence piece, what is, what does that look like? Is it in like really, I guess, fine grain, what does your self-talk look like or sound like rather? Mm Mm-hmm. Or do you gather confidence from like you act big and then you feel more confident after that? How mm-hmm. did you, how did you build this confidence if it wasn't kind of like a innate character trait that you already had? Mm-hmm. 
I think like throughout my life, like I've always tried really hard to avoid sounding like arrogant or even like like cocky. And like going back to sort of like that negative self-talk, I think in my head, like in order to avoid sounding arrogant or cocky, if I, you know, if, if I, if I felt like people were starting to think that I sounded that way, I would just, you know, vocally put myself down, I guess, if that makes sense, just to sort of maintain that level of humility, which wasn't the greatest strategy. Cause when you're continuing to like berate yourself and talk about yourself negatively in all these different ways, I, you know, it's just strange, strange thing that your mind does. It starts to, you know, believe the certain things that you're saying to yourself. And I think there's a really, really good quote about this that I read recently is that humility is not thinking less of yourself is thinking of yourself less. I like Um, that more. And so, you know, once I started realizing that this negative self-talk was really affecting my confidence on court, off court, you know, it's really, really funny story. My, my freshman year end of, uh, the fall semester, you know, after every semester, we have sort of like a feedback session uh, with the entire team and we go through each person and we sort of just talk about different things they've done really well throughout the semester, certain things they can improve on. Is that open with all That's of your open. teammates and with your the whole teammates and the coaches? Yep. Okay, keep going. That's an interesting kind of team building mm-hmm. and improving exercise, but sorry, keep going. Mm-hmm. And the number one thing that came out for me in that session, um, I think maybe like three or four different people said it, including our assistant coach. I had to stop, you know, putting myself down so much. I had to stop saying I'm a bad tennis player, all this, you know, all of these different things. And once I started, you know, realizing that it was a really bad habit, this negative self-talk, I really had to learn how to like frame certain things that I was saying in like a positive life, for example, like if I was like missing a serve, I, instead of going like, Oh man, my serve sucks. Like, you know, why can't I put the ball in the court? All of a sudden now I'm trying to tell myself, I'm trying to give myself constructive criticism in, in the sense that like, I'm telling myself that like, Oh, I need to like reach up a little more. I need to like, you know, put my, like keep my head up or something like certain things that will actually help me improve as a tennis player rather than just putting myself down. And so I think this positive, this positive self-talk on court and off court, like just really was just such a, you know, big boost. Just gave me such a big boost in terms of like mental health and also confidence. I, f- that I feel like, you know, really started showing my results on court, but also, you know, just as, as a person off court. That idea tracks on to, have you ever listened to, well, let me say, the Seattle Seahawks football team have their sports psychologist is one of my idols and mentors, somebody who I haven't actually met Dr. Michael Gervais. And he Mm -hmm. is more of your traditional sports psychologist working on mindset and really tangible skills. And then in addition to him, Russell Wilson has worked with the, his coach, Trevor Moad, and he wrote a book on, it's called, it takes what it takes, but it's basically about neutral thinking Mm -hmm. this idea that, okay, so you, in your instance, you have a bad serve and your habit is to 
berate yourself. And that's literally just a habit loop. You know, you, you probably didn't even, it wasn't even conscious, but first you made it conscious. And then is the next thing you say, it didn't sound like it was necessarily like positive. Mm-hmm. It was more like neutral, right? It was mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. It was okay. This is what I need to do, but it's not only this is what I need to do, but it's coming from an optimistic framework and a positive framework. Like mm-hmm. the future is going to be better than the past, you know? So it's mm-hmm. kind of combining like, okay, I believe in myself. I'm optimistic, but in this moment, this is a input. This is a challenge. And this is what I can do to improve. Is that kind of how you would talk to yourself? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was kind of the way of talking to myself that I really wanted to develop. Like, I mean, even to this day, like I still catch myself with this negative self-talk. I mean, it's definitely much less than I was, you know, say in my freshman year of college, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, I feel something that helps me um, just that, that neutral self-talk rather than that negative self-talk where you're putting yourself down, you're giving yourself, you know, constructive criticism that will actually help you achieve like these certain goals. I think I caught you said that sometimes that negative self-talk carried over like off the court. Mm -hmm. If you're comfortable talking about it, what did, I guess, where did you see that come up the most for you? Mm -hmm. I think it was definitely more of an issue in junior tennis, uh, in my high school experience, I always have bad practices. And, you know, like I said, I, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm my number one, you know, uh, critic. So I always expect, I expect this level of, of tennis for myself. And when I don't achieve that level of tennis, I just feel like I just, you know, i either failed that practice or I failed that match. And so I would always like go back to my room and it would really affect me. It would just bug me. Yes. And it really affected my, yeah. And it really affected my, you know, my mental health outside of tennis as well. But I think I eventually got to reach a point where the sort of like actions that, you know, or like how I felt on court didn't, didn't relate to sort of how I was feeling off court. So I wouldn't let sort of a bad day or a good day affect how I acted outside the court. So once I was able to sort of separate the two like my life on the court and off the court that's when i really started to number one see my mental health improve quite a bit but also embrace adversity a little better because then you know instead of like sort of like running away from adversity in the fear like like running away from adversity on a tennis court in the fear that it would you know affect my life outside of tennis i really sort of began to understand that you know, adversity that I face on court, like adversity builds character. And when sort of like these different situations, these different matches, these different practices was really irrelevant to sort of how I felt off court. That's when I really started to see a big, big improvement in my game. And I can totally relate. We're recording this around the new year. And so I just kind of went back through my last year of journaling and just some of the highlights I'll usually like circle if I have some Mm -hmm. big insights. And that was one from the last year was, I'm not going to quote it. I can't remember, but it was something to the effect of a bad day of baseball 
does not mean you have to have a bad day. Yeah, I love that. That was really big for me because I tied everything to like, okay, how did I pitch this day? And it wasn't even just pitching. Like, mm-hmm. how did I play catch this day? And this mm-hmm. was even in quarantine with my, I had the absolute blessing of being able to play catch with my dad every day. Like we were kids. I mean, we would go either play catch in the street or go up to the high school and play mm-hmm. catch. And if I didn't feel like I was perfect, the rest, I, I let myself have a bad day. Mm-hmm. And, and I that think is, like, I, sorry, just to like to, no, to go ahead. There. I think that it also goes back to sort of like that idea of identity that you brought up earlier in the conversation. Yes. I mean, if you really, you know, believe that your identity as a person is as a baseball player, as a tennis player, then I, I don't know, at least in my opinion, I don't think that's the greatest mindset to be in, in terms of your mental health. Because like I said, sports always so up and down, up and down. And so, yeah, I mean, once you're, once you're able to sort of separate the two, you know, your, your life in athletics and your life outside of athletics, I feel like that's, it's great for the mental health. No doubt. And this idea of being able to change your self-talk and this is not necessarily an overnight thing. Like this is a, mm-hmm. a skill that takes practice. And I'm wondering, did you have any sort of, I mean, a lot of sports psychologists and what's helped for me with like a mindfulness practice, being able to mm-hmm. catch your thinking, or maybe I know a lot of athletes like scripting where they kind of go through a situation and they play it out in a journal or anticipate what they're going to say to themselves and then be really intentional about what they're going to say to themselves. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, did you have any mental skills training? I mean, you had the, you had the physical training on lock since you were mm-hmm. eight years old, dude, you were, you were up at 6am. Oh man. But, um, but I mean, I feel like this mental training piece gets lost. And I was wondering if you had any, any practice. Mm-hmm. So I think what was, you know, who has been so incredibly helpful in terms of, you know, the, the, the mental aspect of athletics is our team sports psychologist. You know, prior to college, I never really worked with anyone who helped me sort of train like the, the, the mental aspect of the sport. And so when we started working with this guy, like he introduced the freshmen to like this, this scripting practice. Um, What's his name? Did, Sorry. Uh, Lorenzo Batrami. So his son was actually on the, uh, the tennis team a few years before I came on. And he actually works with a few uh, athletics teams at Harvard, um, as well as, you know, pro tennis players and pro athletes. So he introduced us to this scripting method, which basically is the act of sort of outlining what you want to get from each practice, from each match, what you anticipate is going to happen. You know, certain things you're, you're grateful for also there's sort of like this whole, you know, bullet point list that he wants us to go through as well as sort of like a debrief session afterwards where you kind of reflect on the practice, on the match, think about things you could have done better. Um, things you did do well, you know, whether or not you really followed like sort of the outline that you, that you wrote for yourself prior to the practice or match. And I think that's something that, that really helped me in terms of sort of that, that self-talk, because I feel that before college, I wasn't, you know, doing any of this um, scripting stuff and I was just coming off court and I'm just 
you know, after maybe like a bad match, just telling myself like, oh man, like that was awful. You know, what was that? Like you train all, you know, you train so hard, so many hours just to like go on court and do some, you know, <laughs> just like not make it four in the court or whatever, you know. But now, you know, when I was in college, I was having these bad practices or these bad matches and I was writing down on a piece of paper and it's like really interesting sort of like how vast like that difference is in terms of like what you sort of tell yourself in your mind after a bad day in comparison to like what you write down because what you're not going to write down on a piece of paper after you know a day you're not going to like write down like you are a bad player like you're a bad athlete expletive 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 exactly like you're gonna you know really focus on sort of things that uh, the you know our mental coach lorenzo um told us to write about which are you know whether or not you followed uh, the, the script that you that you gave yourself before the match all these different all these different things and that something that really helped me too because once i like sort of put all of these things that i was thinking on a piece of paper not everyone i was not everything i was thinking just sort of only like the sort of the constructive piece of it those were sort of like the thoughts that i could really like hone in on and focus on and then afterwards i felt you know would always feel a little better a little better about myself because I would always, you know, think about the different things that I learned from each match, how this certain day of adversity is a little piece of adversity is going to help me improve as, you know, a player and a person. So the scripting practice, shout out episode three, PK, yeah. tennis manager also has, well, yeah. also has taken advantage of this scripting practice in mm-hmm. his outside of the yeah. athletics. Yeah. So if I remember right, there's a part where you write down what you're grateful for first, mm-hmm. right? Definitely. And then you kind of script the practice ahead of you, the match ahead of you. And then are you writing down like the self-talk? This is in X situation. I am going to say to myself, why is that kind of the structure it looks like? Mm-hmm. Well, I think everyone sort of has like their own, preferred sort of like script that they that they have for themselves for me it's kind of like really thinking about what i want to focus on on that day what i want to get out of that practice or that match you know some days i'll be i won't be feeling well you know everyone has bad days everyone has good days but it's you know you always have to sort of make the most of what you have on that given day that's something that i really tell myself all the time you know there'll be certain days where i'm i'm, I'm not feeling well um maybe i'm a little tired maybe i you know did all this schoolwork. Maybe I'm upset about, you know, a certain grade, maybe I got in the test, but I'll just tell myself, you know, I'm not feeling great today, but regardless, I'm going to put my hundred percent energy, the rest of what I have into this practice, I'm going to be vocal for my teammates. I'm not going to let them, you know, know, even know that, you know, I had a bad day. I'm not going to, you know, display any negative body language, all different, all of these different things, because all of this, all these like negative behaviors, these negative attitudes, it doesn't just affect yourself, but also your teammates, like I said. So if I'm on court, you know, like sulking, I mean, just like tanking a practice or like throwing my racket around, it's going to affect those around me. You know, it's not just my practice anymore. It's, it's my teammates. So yeah, I mean, that's something that has been super helpful, the scripting before matches, before practices. So what I'm hearing is a lot of neutral thinking and then controlling the controllables. Mm-hmm. And exactly. then after a practice or match, are you kind of evaluating yourself on 
what you like the goals you set for yourself that day and not and in doing so not letting yourself kind of just let your mind run wild on mm-hmm. your evaluation of your performance that day is that kind of exactly what it looks I like always, i always try and focus on you know stuff you can't control and that's the energy but like you know attitude behavior on court because you never know i'm gonna have i might have days where i can't put a four in the court i have days where i'm playing amazing i'm playing out of my mind but I'll, I'm, I'm always focusing on sort of like the, like you said, I mean, controlling the controllables, body behavior, like body language, you know, attitude, all of, all of, all of these uh, different things. That's so cool to hear that scripting is not something I've done, but it sounds like it would be right up my alley. Mm-hmm. Like being able to put your thoughts and ideas down on the page and being able to evaluate, evaluate yourself mm-hmm. objectively and it's, I feel like it's one of those routines that like it's really easy to like kind of tell yourself okay I'm gonna you know do the scripting and then just you know you end up you know not not doing right. it at all I mean I'm, I'm definitely guilty of that I'm sure you know you know other people are guilty of that as well that's why I feel like it's so important to do it in practice like make that a part of your practice so does it is it a daily practice like all right you get to the court or right before you stretch or whatever you take out a journal, you take out your iPhone, like what does it look like? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely something that I do more at college. I honestly, like I said, like I'm definitely guilty of not doing it as much as I should. But yeah, I mean, we, we were given a journal, each, each of us on the team by our um, uh, mental coach. And we just, you know, take a pen and paper and just, and just write down, you know, just bullet points, like what I want to get out today, what I'm grateful for, how I'm feeling, like how I, you know, how I'll make the most out of the day. That's so cool. And I want to connect this to, correct me if I'm wrong, probably the biggest tournament you played in the New York Open Mm -hmm. just this past year. I mean, you went up against, I think at the time, number 59 in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's pretty dang cool. And I was wondering, did you script before that match? Oh yeah, definitely. What did, a, what did you What did you tell yourself? Well, I mean, if you can share, and if not, then. yeah, of course. I mean, number one was just enjoy it out there. Something that one of our captains had told me, uh, Logan Weber, who who is uh, graduated who graduated last year. Um, that was great. You know, right before I boarded, you know, I went to my gate at the ho- at the uh, at the airport because we were just coming back from a weekend of dual matches um, at Vanderbilt. Um, so I, you know, split ways with the rest of the team, went to my day, they went to theirs. And as we split away, he sort of like ran over to me and was like, Hey man, look, you're, you're playing this like, like awesome match. You have a, you have this opportunity of a lifetime that, you know, most tennis players, you know, won't have this chance to play on such a big stage. And, you know, the, the, the next few days may go by like in a flash. So try and just slow down, taking every second of it because you never know when, when you might get this chance again. And that was so helpful for me, like going into it, because I don't know about you, but for me, when I have like these really big moments in my life, I just sort of like go blank. I mean, right. sort of like, I don't know what, if I'm getting like nervous or I'm like too pumped for something, then it just kind of like, just goes by so quickly. And so that's why I really, you know, told myself before the match, like taking every second of it, it's going to be, you know, one of the most intense, like, two hours, two and a half hours, an hour and a half of your life. But 
it's going to be, you know, it's going to be freaking awesome. Like you're going to have all these people cheering for you on such a big stage, you know, everything you worked for up to this point in your, in your career has, you know, led up to this moment. So I just told myself, you know, you, I owe it to myself to, to enjoy it. If I lose O and O, so be it. You know, I, you know, I had, I had a great time out there uh, having so many people watch me being on TV. And if I, you know, end up doing well, also great. But at the end of the day, like, this match is not gonna is not gonna define who I am as a tennis player, who I am as a person, and that's I mean yeah, and that's and that's also something that I really tell myself before every match. Now, there's no match practice or, or day that's gonna define me as a tennis player because I know who I am as a tennis player. I know what I've achieved, what I can achieve, hopefully later in life. But today will not be the defining moment in my career because a career can be defined by sort of everything you've done throughout the entire that entire uh, time rather than just that one day. That's so cool to hear that that was intentional or you set those intentions because I watched the YouTube clip, which we can link in the show notes <laughs> and no, you really like your body language. I mean, you had a smile on your face and then I saw like there was a moment where you looked up into the crowd and you waved and then like your face just kind of glowed up that was that was super cool to see and it maps on to kind of what you're what you're talking about like all right you told yourself you're gonna have fun out there you're gonna enjoy it Mm -hmm. and i think that's so important the combination of enjoying it and then also recognizing this isn't going to define me Mm -hmm. as a tennis player but you also mentioned as a person and then that goes back to the idea of having a, a split identity. Mm-hmm. So that's all to say it makes sense that you set those intentions in the scripting mm-hmm. and because that's how it manifested uh, in your body language, which was mm-hmm. in your control, which was super cool to hear. Mm-hmm. And in, I think it was a post-game interview, please fact check me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I think you said, I just try to keep my head as empty as possible. Mm-hmm. So that seems maybe a little counterintuitive to what we've been talking about. So is, can you explain that mm-hmm. quote, what you meant? So when that? I, yeah. So when I'm talking about like, keep my head empty, I'm talking about like really trying to avoid sort of like coaching myself at the last second in terms of like technique, all these different things. Like, obviously like I'm really you know, sort of focused on like, taking in every moment, you know, every feeling out there. But I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of athletes that sort of suffer from the same thing, but I, I tend to like really overthink a ton when I'm playing matches sometimes. Same here. <laughs> and um, it really has sort of like this counterintuitive effect. Like you're thinking about all the different things, how you can improve like your game during a match, yep. which doesn't really make sense because you're not going to really be switching anything during a game during yeah, a match. you're not going to be any better than exactly what you brought to the field or court exactly like all of that happens before in practice and you put in all these hours so that's what i mean by sort of like keeping my mind clear really just letting my game play for itself like letting the like the muscle memory kind of take over yes um, and just you know just stay along for the ride just, that's awesome yeah just in terms of technique just let yourself go on autopilot. Exactly. Yeah. You don't need to be, I don't know, for me, it's like, oh, my 
me needs to be here and my arm mm-hmm. needs to be here and I need to be mm-hmm. thinking about this. And then you're moving in slow motion yeah. as opposed to just, just letting it flow. Exactly. So, okay. That makes a lot of sense then mm-hmm. to keep your head empty because it's more of the, I would imagine like critical coach, like you should be doing, I don't know, for me, it's like, you know what you should be doing. It should be this and you're not mm-hmm. doing it. And then for me, it's not like I wouldn't get mad at myself. It would be more like I would just think about it. And then that takes you off of your, yeah. your end goal, which is baseball, throw a, throw a strike, throw exactly. it hard. Exactly. It's, it's like, like make a competitive serve. Mm-hmm. It's actually interesting. Like you can tell yourself to do all these different things. Like I need to hit a winner here. Or like, you know, just put the ball in the court. But it's like really interesting how like you could tell yourself to do all these different things. And then your body sort of has, has this like way of like not doing that thing. Yes. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. but No, it does. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's weird. It always happens to me. Yeah, the second you tell your body to do something, it's, it's not going to work out. Just yeah. trust, trust the practice, trust the muscle memory. Exactly, yeah. And I think we could riff on this for hours, but just to be cognizant of the time, those either physical or mental or outside of sport, I was wondering if you had any like habits or routines outside of matches that might be hard as hell but are totally worth it. I think it's number one, positive self-talk. Just avoid the negative self-talk and everything I do. I mean, that's, that's key, at least for me. Um, I mean, I, you know, like I said earlier, growing up, I just always have this tendency to like, just put myself down keep putting myself down, like always wanting to strive for perfection but just really understanding that, you know, everyone makes mistakes. It's all about improving every day. Just really sort of, you know, focusing on developing this sort of, you know, mentality where it's okay to, 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 uh, to make mistakes. So I think really transitioning from uh, a mindset where, you know, it was, it's not okay to make mistakes and you have to be perfect to one where you're allowing yourself to do these different things and, you know, experiment and, and, you know, let yourself make mistakes essentially. So that was definitely hard. Took a, still taking a very long time. And like I said, like still trying to improve on, on, on all of this, but it's been a, it's been a ride and, and it's definitely super helpful. Yeah. And it sounds like you're, you have the right approach to it that you're not, you're not beating yourself up about not being perfect about beating yeah. yourself up. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's that having that kind of that optimistic outlook that growth mindset of all right we can get better at this Mm -hmm. that maps on to it sounds like over the course of college it seems like that's really changed your game and your approach to the game i'm wondering on top of the on top of the scripting practice is there any other new behavior or habit or belief that's been especially helpful over the past few years of your college career? Like I said, inside or outside of tennis? Mm -hmm. 
this might sound dumb, but like it's a, this person that comes to mind and something that was super helpful. I mean, keeping my, my head up and my chest up and everything I do like that, like that positive, like body language again. And like I said, like, if you, like, even if you don't believe you are that great of an athlete, that great of a tennis player or, you know, or, you know, something completely irrelevant to athletics, if you kind of like fake it sort of in a sense, then your mind will start to believe that you are great at that certain thing. I don't, uh, like, I mean, it, no, you're it right really on. sort of like a sort of like a weird phenomenon, I guess. But no, you're right on. And you know, I'm a psychology major, so there is good science science on it. That mm-hmm. yeah, physical body language isn't just projecting outwards; it's also projecting inwards and that can be like the the first step to mm-hmm. making yourself feel good about yourself. I mean, keeping your head up, chest up, whatever you tell yourself is way easier than saying than working on your self-talk, mm-hmm. right? So let's let's just let's just pick off the lowest hanging fruit. It's like, all right, if my body language sucks, let's fix that and then maybe I don't even need to work on the self-talk. Exactly. I like that. And I usually like to wrap these, these conversations up by asking if you have, well, let me say you've dropped a lot of wisdom and perspective. (laughs) So, so thank you. And because you've had a really unique trajectory to Mm -hmm. college, I mean, I think I'm going to have to ask you back for a round two. We didn't even get into being homeschooled or not even homeschooled, but virtual high school. I mean, that is a conversation unto itself and all of the, everything that has, that comes from all the side effects, I'll say all Mm -hmm. of the side effects of virtual high school. But like I said, that's a conversation for another day, but to wrap up today, I was wondering if you had a favorite quote or mantra that you live by or think of often as a mm-hmm. quote junkie myself. So this is my favorite one. Um, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Can you say that again? If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Oh, wow. That kind of ties in a lot of what we talked about that That has everything from hills to valleys advice of your old coach Mm -hmm. all the way to being able to stay neutral through it all so that's my interpretation what does that quote mean to you is try and take lessons out of every failure every success just embracing adversity and just taking, you know, just taking every moment of your life as a way of bettering, bettering yourself as, as a person, I feel. Dude, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you so much for coming on and being really open and vulnerable, talking about your path to where you are today. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy to see I was so happy to see you ball out versus Northwestern this spring 
<laughs> and like I said, my fingers are crossed that we both have both have spring seasons, and if they allow spectators, I'll be I'll be at all your matches because, <laughs> dude, that was I'll be at was, all yours. It was so fun. So, just to say it again, thank you so much, and um, I think we might have to run it back round two. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, I'm I'm ready for round two any day. Love it. All right, man. We'll see you. All right. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed that one. As always, you can find links to everything we discussed, show notes, and a lot more goodies on my website at therangeproject.weebly.com. That's therangeproject, all one word, dot weebly. W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. Thanks so much and see you next time.